Welcome to episode 26 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and all sorts of other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave, who has been researching health and nutrition with me for quite a while now. And he also draws on his own experiences from working within the healthcare industry. In today's Q&A episode, we're going to be talking about a variety of topics, including how we can use natural antibiotics and antimicrobials to clear out gut pathogens and also to fix any sort of gut dysbiosis. And we'll also be discussing certain things that you may want to watch out for when using these different compounds and supplements. We'll also be talking about the relationship between our mental health and our physiology. And of course, this also includes the relationship with energy and mitochondrial function. And we'll go through some of the more important things to focus on for improving our mental health. And this includes improving conditions like depression or anxiety or even schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, as all of these have a pretty strong relationship with energy and mitochondrial function. And then lastly, we'll be talking about how to measure whether our bodies are effectively using carbohydrates. And then if we find that they aren't, how we can improve our body's abilities to burn carbohydrates and oxidize glucose. If you have any questions that you'd like to leave us on a future Q&A episode, you can email me at j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's j-a-y at jayfeldmanwellness.com. Or if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to leave those questions in the comments. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast where you can take a look at the articles or studies or other podcast episodes that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any of those symptoms that we will be discussing today, whether that is a gut dysbiosis or some sort of gut infection or other gut symptoms like bloating or inflammation or water retention or constipation, or maybe you're dealing with other low energy symptoms like fatigue or chronic hunger and cravings or joint pain or weight gain, hormonal imbalances, a low libido, or maybe you're not sleeping well, or maybe you're also dealing with some of those mental health symptoms that we'll be discussing today, like depression or anxiety, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy and sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through the main things that you want to focus on, the main things that you want to do in order to optimize your cellular energy production, and why that's really the key to reversing all sorts of these different symptoms and chronic health conditions that we'll be discussing. And in today's episode, we will be talking about some of the complexities as far as addressing gut dysbioses or mental health symptoms or conditions and how it can be pretty difficult to address these symptoms and and there are a lot of factors involved. So if you would like some extra one-on-one help there, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash call and sign up for a free call, and I'd be happy to offer you some more specific suggestions based on what you are experiencing and what's going on in your individual situation. So to sign up for that free call, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com call, and with that, let's get started. All right, so speaking of gut health and addressing it, for people who have um, any sort of potential gut overgrowth, this next question might be for you. So Oscar asks, he's asking about natural antibiotic supplements. And so, you know, just to give some context here, we like to think of antibiotics as bad things, which in many ways, pharmaceutical antibiotics cause a lot of issues. But the point being that bacterial overgrowths or fungal overgrowths are very common and contribute to a lot of issues for pretty universally. Um, when somebody is struggling metabolically, it leads to impairments in digestion that allow for these overgrowths to happen, and you get this vicious cycle. And so in there are certain contexts where using pharmaceutical or natural antibiotics can be pretty helpful to clear out harmful microbes, which we call pathogenic. Um, that it can be helpful to get rid of those things and lead to a lot of symptom relief assuming that we're also doing the things to help restore a healthy microbiome by eating the right foods and, um, and whatnot. Do you want to talk through some of those natural antibiotic supplements that you like to use? Sure. I mean, the biggest ones that I've found success with are, uh, certain types of essential oils. 
the main ones being oregano oil and uh, cinnamon oil. There's other ones that you can use from the research that I've seen. Oregano and cinnamon are some of the strongest. Some of the other essential, they also, the essential oils have other effects too, besides just being antibiotic. So you have to keep in mind too, that some people say, oh, I take this and I'm getting die off. And it's like, you could be getting a die off reaction, but you also could be getting symptoms from what you're taking. Yeah. So it's lasting for an extended period of time that maybe you're getting symptoms. Um, but other ones that I've used within that area are something like olive leaf extract, um, grapefruit seed extract, monolaurin, uh, which is basically a lauric acid as, with a, as a singular ester, I think. Um, that one's actually been pretty helpful for fungal or certain, I think it's gram-positive bacteria that it, it functions on mostly. So those have been really helpful. Um, trying to think of what else I've used. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's certain probiotic strains that I've tried that have been helpful, uh, the bacil- specifically bacil- Bacillus subtilis. There's other Bacillus species like Colossi or Lichenformis. I stayed away from those because some of the research showed them as possibly being pathogens, whereas Subtilis was a little bit uh, less likely to be a pathogen. Um, Those things have all helped out my gut to some extent. Um, I've used them in in multiple different ways uh, and I've in multiple different forms. And I've definitely noticed benefits from those. And I've worked with people who have used, uh, have used them as well and have gotten pretty strong effects from them. There's some other ones that people recommend like uh, raw garlic and things like that, they, I think that they can work. The problem is, is a lot of times they're like really irritating Mm. um, by themselves. So just just be careful with some of the recommendations or like taking tons and tons of vinegar, like apple cider vinegar, like that might be an issue as well. Um, And then obviously with- If it's excessive. If it's excessive, yeah. What I'm saying is because some people have these like ridiculous protocols that they go on to clear their guts and a lot of times the protocol can actually be damaging because it's so excessive right um but things like that oh another another good another interesting one is wormwood um and then cat's claw and pau diarco mm-hmm. which are all different types of herbs you, you have to it's very important before you take these that you read up on them and you get the proper forms um for example with something like oregano oil like the main active ingredient in there is carbacrol and then there's also thymol. High amounts of thymol can be damaging, uh, whereas carvacrol is very damaging. So you have to be careful in what type you're taking. And you what said the it's not. You said carvacrol is not damaging, right, right, while thymol right. can be. Yep. Um, so it's be care- you have to be careful with what you use. You can't just buy cheap whatever over-the-counter stuff. I mean, it is over-the-counter, but you have to be cognizant of what you're using. Um, in other circumstances with cinnamon oil, you want to make sure that you're getting a Ceylon cinnamon instead of cassia cinnamon. Um, cause some certain compounds that can be concentrated in this may be problematic with something like wor- uh, wormwood. You need to make sure that you're not getting a really high amount of thujone. I think that's, the, that's what it is. Um, I think that's the main component of absinthe. Um, and it can have some, it ha- I think it's like a GABA agonist, so it can have, can cause seizures and things like that. So you have to be really careful with what you're using. You have to make sure the quantities that you're using are safe, the forms that you're using are safe, and read up a little bit on on those before you take them. Um, And then obviously all these essential oils have to be diluted. You cannot just take oregano oil in just its oil form orally. It has to be diluted in another specifically a fat, an oil, olive oil, coconut oil, whatever. It has to be diluted. If you just put it in water, it will stay as an oil in the water and it will burn you. So you have to be very careful when you use some of those things. Um, the other thing I was going to say is for something like monolaurin, it's really important, at least in my experience, it works best if you melt it in coconut oil before you use it because the, the monolaurin's uh, melting point is higher than body temperature. So if you just take the little pellets that they often sell it in, a lot of times you'll find that you're just passing the pellets out in your stool or you're not getting such a great effect. And that could be related to um, the pellets not being melted. And on a side note, I've just worked with somebody who had, uh, had gotten an infection um, and then they wind up, they wound up developing psoriasis around the head and neck. And then we basically used monolaurin and it, after using monolaurin, the infection seemed to clean, clean up. So I'm not saying it's a cure. I can't say it's a cure. 
But what I can say is somebody had an infection, they developed psoriasis around the head and neck after the infection. We used monolaurin as a supplement. And then after using monolaurin, not saying it's causative, the psoriasis cleared up in this case. I don't know if it'll work for other cases. I don't know if it was the causative agent. It just was a temporal relationship that might just be a coincidence. But <laughs> that's uh, I have noticed that these things, I have noticed these things working in, a, in, a, in certain instances, particularly for infections and things like that. And there is a lot, there is literature out there showing, especially on some of the essential oils, them being pretty potent um, antimicrobials in general, not just antibiotics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily be that gentle with it. Like these supplements are very effective antibiotic, antiviral, antifungal uh, compounds and can clear infections, which oftentimes contribute to inflammatory states that cause things like psoriasis like it's and other autoimmune issues and like all sorts of other issues that aren't necessarily considered to be autoimmune too the important part is obviously to consult with your doctor before like using any of these things and like you know don't try to treat yourself work with your doctor but um but yeah i mean i've i've seen similar effects like that um so some other things just to add in there are as far as the essential oils, you can also just put them into a capsule if you don't feel like diluting it for whatever reason. That can work um, unless you have any objection to that, Mike. Uh, I just I'm just I would just be careful with using any of the essential oils straight just because yeah. say you take a capsule and it goes in your stomach, opens on your stomach, irritates your stomach, things like that. Just because yeah. they, they are very, very potent. And that's, and that's from my experience of using them and having taken oregano oil straight the first time and having a really terrible time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was only one drop, but let's just be clear. This is like one drop. I mixed it in water and I drank it. And the drop didn't, uh, since it just stayed in oil form, it was, uh, my mouth had a really bad time. And I would just, just be very careful with those things. If you do get burned or you do by accident get it on you, the easiest way to take it off is with a good soap or if you take it internally and you get a burn on your mouth or something like that, taking some coconut oil and swishing it around in your mouth can take that oregano oil off that specific spot and it helps out a lot. So that's something, but just be careful with them. They are very potent and be careful with a lot of the herbs and the essential oils because they have other effects besides being antibiotic. I, I want to stress that point. It's very important because some of them, if you don't know what you're doing, you don't read up on them and you just go on some random website, some random forum and they say, Oh, I took this much of this and I felt way better. It's, it's you have to be careful with that stuff has to be used appropriately has to be used at the right dose. Like it, it is very important. And that's because I've experimented with this stuff and I have hurt myself a few times and I don't, I don't want other people to, to go through that process. Yeah. Yeah. I I would add also that, and like with a lot of these, like there's a, for a few things. One is there's this assumption that natural is is safer or better. And as you're pointing out, sometimes, I mean, in the case of like a pharmaceutical antibiotic, just having the synthetic version or just the isolated version can be uh, of whatever the the effect we're trying to get, whatever compound um, can be safer because you don't have all these other effects that are coming with them. Uh, not to say that, like there are so many other factors to consider here. I'm not just saying pharmaceutical antibiotics are better than, than herbal, but it is important to, to acknowledge that there are problems associated with, with the herbal ones. And so we want to be careful with what we're using, how much we're using. We don't want to just take a kitchen sink approach to it, which a lot of protocols kind of involve that. Um, so yeah. And I, and I would add also lemongrass is another essential oil that I found to be pretty effective with people. Um, idea labs has a product called camphosol that uh has camphoric acid and and then a, a form of salicylic acid uh that has also i've also found to be effective so those are a couple others and there are i mean there, again there are a ton of different products out there with big like with combinations of all of these things and various um herbal compounds and and they can be effective just be aware that there are some potential uh negative side effects if you want to think of it that way activated charcoal is something that can be really helpful to protect against 
any actual die-off symptoms. So in the case that you're actually killing off bacteria that let's say have a lot of endotoxin and that ends up being absorbed, that can cause symptoms. So using activated charcoal can help there and maybe would also help to prevent side effects as well, just by preventing the um, the herbal compounds from being absorbed systemically. I don't know, but just don't um, take them at the. I wouldn't take activated charcoal at the same time that you take whatever you're taking, because then your charcoal is just going to mop up whatever you just took, and nothing's going to happen. Yeah, which take it later on. I have actually heard of of people using them together and seeing some benefits, but I I can't say, um, I can't like say that with any certainty that it's a, it's an effective route. But I've heard of people doing that. Um, but but yeah, and at which point if you're taking it at a different time. And then absorbing the herbal antimicrobials systemically, then you're still going to have the quote unquote die off, which is really just a side effect. So it's something that might be worth testing out to see if it does provide some some relief. But um, but yeah, the other thing I want to add to to the list of things that we talked about is actually a bile acid. For some people, taking bile acids can actually help clear out the small intestine. But the other thing it could do is it can stimulate the intestine to start working again. So if you're having some constipation issues um, and uh, sometimes the bile acids can actually help pretty significantly. Again, you got to be careful with them because if you take too much, the worst thing that happens if you take too much bile acid is you get bile acid diarrhea and it's just not, it's really not fun. It's uh, it burns. <laughs> um, so you just, you can take that if you're having issues digesting fat, but it also can help clear, clear out the small intestine and it can also help get the bowels moving a little bit. If you, if you have like really slow bowels and you don't know what's going on, it can help uh, stimulate the bowels to, to have you go to the bathroom and things like that. And then taking, there's certain herbs. I haven't necessarily played with them yet. It's something that was on my list, but there's certain things like di- digestive bitters and things like that that can help stimulate digestive secretions and it's particularly in gut infections or things like that, or slow bowels that may be able to help out. That's something that's, that's on the drawing board. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of herbal compounds. There's a lot of essential oils, uh, that can, that can be helpful. That can, that, and they really, I mean, as much as you're going to see, Oh, it doesn't work. It's this, it's that a lot of the stuff really does work. And a lot of the stuff is really helpful. Um, so Alan, another one just off the top of my head is propolis, which is, uh, it's like a it's like a resin produced by bees that in their hive that serves has an antibacterial function, and so that can help in certain circumstances as well. Yeah, and manuka honey too. Speaking of bees, yeah, and manuka honey can be very helpful too. Yeah, and I think there's there you can find manuka oils as well. Um, yeah, the manuka honey is just expensive if you're going to get the really potent stuff. Yeah, and so yeah, so as you said, these things can all be very effective antibiotics, which can be really helpful for clearing out a gut issue. It is not the solution because you still need to address the digestive side of things and what led to the bacterial issue in the first place, but they can be really helpful when used in the right context and can lead to a lot of reductions in various symptoms and conditions. Again, um, it's important to mention that you know you should consult your doctor before doing any of these things. This is not medical advice. And with that, let's move on to the next question. So Joelle asks about brain health and psychology and the relationship to the bioenergetic view or viewing these things through a bioenergetic lens. So it's a, it's a really great question. I've worked with a ton of people with all sorts of what are considered to be psychological disorders, whether it's bipolar or PTSD or, you know, extreme anxiety. And seen drastic improvements by addressing things on this bioenergetic level and it's i mean it's a in some ways it's it's like a relatively complex relationship but but it's also relatively simple where the basics of it is that things function properly when we have enough energy available and that means that you end up with the right balance of neurotransmitters which is similar to hormones in that it's kind of like a, a symptom and just kind of a representation of what may or may not be going on and often are, is an oversimplification. Uh, for example, the whole idea that chemical imbalances underlie depression or um, which is another condition that I've definitely seen quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, the idea that it's just like a particular chemical imbalance where you just have slightly too much of this neurotransmitter, slightly too less of this other one, which normally they're talking about serotonin being too low. Um, that's definitely not the case. It's it's a little more complex than that. But the 
But the important thing that I guess I would say is that a lot of a lot of the symptoms that we consider from the brain health side, whether it's fatigue, not fatigue, whether it's brain fog or depression or anxiety or any of these other kind of symptoms that exhibit psychologically, they are directly driven by our underlying metabolic health state and can be directly affected by gut health, especially. So this is one of the most common things that I see where people who like when if they are susceptible to, to these things and they eat foods that are feeding gut microbes or that they don't digest well, that'll cause an uptick in symptoms and vice versa, where if those things are addressed, it leads to drastic improvements in these symptoms. And again, another side of it too would definitely be supplying enough fuel, supplying enough nutrients. Uh, it's pretty, I mean, we kind of have joked about how when we were low carb, it how much it changes your mind state. And in some ways, I mean, it's just, you you can become obsessed with food. That's normally like a way that it manifests and, and eating and like waiting for the next meal, but also definitely affected our, our us in, in that, or at least for me, I was definitely more irritable. I didn't have the same energy to focus on, on like cognitive work or even in physical things. So, which just goes to show how important carbohydrates are as far as supplying energy that we use both for, you know, our, our musculature, but also for our brains and our brains are, you, you know, they're using glucose as their primary fuel almost all the time, uh, ideally all the time, because it's either glucose or ketones. And so when you're not getting enough glucose and you're in the stress state, it'll use ketones. But so having enough glucose available is a huge component here as far as uh, brain health and then making sure that the brain can actually use that glucose. So keeping blood sugar steady, which we've done some episodes on blood sugar that I'll link to by eating enough of the right types of carbohydrates throughout the day definitely makes a huge difference there as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I found that, I mean, I think we both found, at least for me, that uh, when I have had gut issues, it has something that's directly affected my mood. And then the other thing is this low blood sugar is something that also directly affects my mood. Yeah. And then going from low carb to high, to eating more carb, basically no carb. We were doing like, I well, we were almost doing, I was almost doing keto. I was just eating a lot of protein instead. Um, yeah. and I felt that directly impaired my ability to learn. That was something that I noticed since increasing carbs a lot that I can just read something and I just understand it. No problem. I just get it. I don't have to read it over to try and understand it. I just get it. Like I understand the general idea very fast. As far as the specific details, yeah, I sometimes depending on the process, you know, if you're looking at the entirety of cell respiration, it's going to take a second to understand all the steps and things like that. If you really want to go into that detail. But at the end, like, that's something that I noticed for me is just learning is just a lot quicker since increasing carbs and things like that. Um, and I think that energy is extremely important because I know, and you can talk to anybody who's anyone who's done a cut to try and lose weight or things like that. The first thing that goes is mood. And a lot of people, and the other thing, as far as the, the imbalance idea mm -hmm. from, for neurotransmitters and things like that. I wouldn't say that the neurotransmitters are imbalanced. I would probably say that something in the lifestyle is imbalanced and then the neurotransmitters are reflecting that. It, it, if that's, if the neuro, I mean, if the neurotransmitters even play out to have a relevant, this extremely relevant theory, I mean, it, it is just a theory, but basically, I mean, you can even see in the Minnesota starvation experiment, which we've talked about ad nauseum at this point, that basically when people have a very strict caloric intake, you develop all these weird symptoms. Now, if you, and I've had friends who have gone on these ridiculous diets or did these, these meditation things and went vegetarian and this and that, and then developed all these psychological symptoms. And I went to the doctor and got diagnosed with some, with some disorder, schizophrenia, whatever it was. And before that, they had never had any issue like that. They had never had any mental disorders they never had any mood disorders they didn't have anything like that they went on this extreme diet they went into these this very low calorie diets and then all of a sudden they develop psychological issues and then they have a diagnosis of a, of a disorder and i mean from my perspective i don't see a disorder there in terms of some sort of oh it's schizophrenia oh it's this oh it's that i just see somebody who went on an extremely low calorie diet and that was nutrient poor and this and that and energy poor in general and then develop symptoms afterwards that make sense for that state. So the context is important to look at instead of just 
we have this group of symptoms here, and then this is the diagnosis. I don't think that that's really helpful to what's the context? Why are they having these symptoms? I've also had friends who got involved with doing a lot of drugs and things like that. And they also weren't eating. They were doing a lot of drugs. They were living on coffee and aspirin and cigarettes and marijuana. And on the weekends, um, LSD and shrooms. And then, so they weren't eating. They lost a ton of weight and they were doing a lot of drugs. And then all of a sudden, they wind up getting a psychological psych disorder diagnosis. And it's just like, do they really have a psych disorder? Or is their lifestyle just not conducive to, to maintaining a healthy psychological function? And in both these cases, I would say that this is that's that that tended to be the cause. Um, and this is this these are anecdotal experiences. The other thing is is there's um, beyond the bioenergetic perspective, which we which we covered having and which you can see in the Minnesota starvation experiment, and in general having enough energy is extremely important for biological function. And that extends all the way to the nervous system. But you can see in certain uh, articles, uh, they discuss certain food compounds like casomorphins, which are morphine-like components in dairy or exorphins in wheat, causing symptoms in the population and, and, and particularly schizophrenia and in some very, and in some, uh, I guess, susceptible population symptoms of autism. And it's from an excessive uh, amount of opiate stimulation from these particular components of food because they don't digest them well, whatever the case is as to why it affects certain people versus others. And so my question really is, is I'm sure that there's, there's mental disorders out there, but the question is, what is the underlying majority in most of them? And I would say it's probably a lifestyle-related thing specifically, and everything goes down to the energetic level. Um, everything comes back to the energetic level. So what's going on in their lifestyle that's, that's causing these effects, what's causing the damage and things like that. And I think that the addressing those is really, is more important in a lot of cases before trying to come to some sort of arbitrary diagnosis. And then based on some sort of arbitrary set of criteria and then coming to some sort of drug that is supposed to be used for that, I mean, it, it, again, it's looking for a silver bullet option where there is not a silver bullet option. If you're going to go and do a bunch of drugs and not eat and not take care of yourself, are you going to probably wind up with some type of disorder, whether it's psychological or physical? Probably. That would be, that seems like it makes a lot of sense to me. If you're not, if you're going to go on these extremely religious diets with caloric, uh, extremely low caloric intake and, um, and, and it's vegetarian or vegan and, this and that, and you and you've eaten meat your whole life, and you used to be like 200 pounds working out in the gym, and then you go down into 150, 150 pounds. Yeah, you're probably going to have problems. There's going to be issues, I and mean, you it's it's in the research in multiple areas. It's, it's not like something that's me just saying it from my personal experience. So I think the energetic point for psychology and brain health is extremely important. And then the other thing I think it's important to talk talk about in relation to psychology and diagnosis and whatnot is that the way things are set up at least from my experience from my reading is with the dsm-5 and then the dsm-5 is essentially just it's basically uh, uh there's a list or there's a there's a list of mental disorders oppositional defiance disorder uh bipolar personality disorder and then they basically just have symptoms that go underneath that disorder and with and some of them have like some proposed theoretical basis of what causes disease on some sort of neurotransmitter level, but it hasn't really been fully proven or anything like that. So as far as as far as how things go in that area, it's basically you have a list of symptoms and then you have a disorder associated with those symptoms without really any sort of fully elaborated physiologic basis in most cases. So in my mind, it's you can get a diagnosis and then you can have a drug that goes with that diagnosis because they found it works in some degree to, to alleviate some percentage or, or amount of symptoms based on a calculated questionnaire. But I think overall, the, a diagnosis in some of those cases isn't a death sentence. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have some disorder for life. I mean, especially if you start adjusting um, certain lifestyle factors and and figuring, you know, maybe if I eat this, it messes me up. Maybe I have something going on with my gut. Maybe I'm not eating enough. Maybe I'm just 
having an excess amount of stress at work or I have a poor relationship or I have some sort of thing that happened in childhood, whatever it was. I think there could be multiple etiologies there. And then I think for a lot of people in the bioenergetic view, it's important to, to take a, to take a step back and realize that maybe you're, when you have an issue or you have some type of uh, stress on the body, your manifestation could be psychological. So I think, I think it's important to step outside the idea of a diagnosis and this is what I am and realize that the diagnosis is just a categorization of symptoms based on observation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a disease or some genetic problem or something like that. It could, it could be from a lifestyle issue. And a lot of people that I've seen and worked with were mo- had a lot of lifestyle issues going on. I mean, right. it wasn't just, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just, uh, like just some random, I'm a schizophrenic type of thing. In a lot of cases of people, I have IBS. Well, and I have anxiety and depression and you often see those things go together. Okay. So you have some issues going on with your gut and depending on what you eat, you get anxiety and depression. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to recognize that the, that these are, these disorders are like a way to classify groups of symptoms together, which there's value to, but it doesn't mean that it's a disease that you are stuck with that it's permanent, that there's nothing you can do about and that you were just born with it it at all and it kind of leads to this there's kind of this fight between the separation between like mental health and physical health where on one hand you have this idea that they're entirely separate and on the other hand you have this you have the idea that they're interrelated but you also have these people who are saying that something as simple something as ridiculous i should say as that low serotonin causes depression and because there's a lot to be said that like in in depression for example it's not just caused by low serotonin or not caused by low serotonin at all there's like people then fly the other way and say and this is kind of what you're alluding to before when i was talking about chemical imbalance where you're like well there there is like physiological reasons involved and that's true because and the reason why it's important to mention that is because some people will say it's it can't be affected at all physiologically like what you eat has nothing to do with your mental health and what you know whether you're exercising or or any other factors in your lifestyle those are completely separate and how could your thoughts be affected by those things and which is which is an absurd notion yeah it's insane i can't believe it doesn't make that doesn't make any sense to me to just if if you just experience yourself right don't get sleep and then tell me how your function is don't eat for a day and then tell me how your function changes your, and then, yeah, your thoughts and, it, and your mood. Yeah. Yeah. And then sit there and tell me that they're not related. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And for women, especially, I mean, as far as the hormonal side with their cycles, they experience this uh, often monthly. I mean, it depends on how <laughs> significant their symptoms are. But, you know, sometimes for men, it's hard to empathize with that because many men haven't like experienced the same thing or in the same way or aren't as in tune with themselves to know that at certain points, they might have certain hormonal fluctuations based on what they're eating or whatever they're doing that can affect their mood. But women are definitely pretty aware of how much our physiology affects our thoughts and, and our mood and our mental state. And as you were mentioning earlier, there is a lot of research tying mitochondrial dysfunction and, and the ability of our mitochondria to function properly to things like depression and also schizophrenia and bipolar and all sorts of other uh, neurological or psychological disorders. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there, there is not, like, I, w- I guess I would say that there is not a, there's no distinction between our mental health and the rest of our health. It is in the same way that there's no distinction between our joint health and the rest of our health. It just, how people exhibit symptoms varies, but these things are all very much affected f- by what is going on with our physiology and, Looking at it through that bioenergetic view, I think is the by far the, the the best or most accurate way to to view it as far as wanting to have any lasting improvements. And even if you don't agree with the bioenergetic view, at the base minimum, recognizing that everything is connected in the body, there's not a separate issue. I think is the first step and is extremely important. Instead of this idea of breaking down the body into its parts and then assuming that the parts equal the equal the sum of the whole, like it, it just doesn't work right. that way. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. You can't just cut off the arm without affecting the other structures within the body. I mean, you have an infection in your toe that affects the body in general. It's not just one small, it's just my toe. 
Right. You know, and it's the same thing with the brain. It's the same thing with mood. It's the same thing with function. I mean, I just, it, it doesn't, it, it's just such an absurd proposition to sit there and say, oh, the, the mind isn't affected. It's like, if the primary function of the kidney is to filter the blood, and then you have some sort of damaging effect on the blood, and then it affects the kidney, if the primary function of the brain is to perceive and to rationalize things, and then you have some damaging function of the blood, it should probably affect the brain's ability to perceive and rationalize and things like that. Like, it just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't, I just, I don't see how you could have them separate. Right. I don't get it at all. It's just, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's a, like, <laughs> it's, it's so reductionist to view these different organ systems, for example, even as such, but as, as separate, um, the brain being one of them. I mean, one that's acknowledged, one, one thing that has been acknowledged, uh, cause it's had to be is that a lot of serotonin, the vast majority of serotonin ends up being produced by the gut. So there's, you know, a very clear connection there between our gut health and brain health. And when you're considering that serotonin might not be such a good thing and it might not be, and it might be produced when things in your gut aren't going too well, then, um, I mean, that's, that's a pretty important thing to consider if you are dealing with, um, some sort of imbalance there, some sort of psychological disorder. Yeah. That's about, that's all I got for that one. Yeah. Uh, and just for reference also, I've written uh, an article talking about why depression is not just caused by like a simple lack of serotonin and um, all the issues with, with those views and also what can be done to improve it. So I'll link to that article. All right. So David asks, uh, how can I improve cellular carbohydrate utilization and what tools, techniques, or blood markers are helpful to show whether this is improving? What about body temperature and pulse? So this is a really good question uh, where when he's talking about cellular carbohydrate utilization, what he's talking about is our, the body's ability to use carbohydrates, which comes down to really glucose oxidation, which is the ability for, for our cells to convert glucose to essentially usable energy. And the reason why this is so important is because this is one of the major, I mean, we talk about energy production all the time. And this is one of the major kind of interfaces of that. This is basically, uh, I mean, we're either using carbs or we're using fats for fuel. And so a lot of people do have issues utilizing carbohydrates. And this is basically called insulin resistance. And the extreme version of it is type 2 diabetes. But it occurs on much like on smaller levels as well within different tissues or just in somebody who might be struggling with weight gain, even if they don't have um, elevated markers to the point where it would cause or would be considered to be insulin resistance, they might still not be using carbohydrates properly. So the, I mean, we talk, we kind of give this blanket statement with all of this, where addressing things like gut health, nutrients, all of that is, are, are the main things that affect carbohydrate utilization. When you look at mitochondrial respiration, when you look at glucose oxidation, it's directly impacted by all of those things. It's directly impacted by PUFA, the polyunsaturated fats. It's directly impacted by endotoxin. It's directly impacted by a lack of nutrients. For example, the various B vitamins or lack of magnesium. All of those things will directly stop the cell's ability to use glucose efficiently. And when that happens, it, it's forced to switch over to fat, which again, fat utilization is not, is not inherently an issue, but we need to be able to make sure that we're oxidizing carbohydrates properly. Uh, without that that kind of force switch over without the lack of efficiency which causes all of these other issues so do you have anything to add there before we talk about basically how you can measure your carb utilization uh, i just think for a lot of the type 2 diabetic things in populations that i've seen um i think a lot of it stems around particularly gut issues um because i think uh, in a lot of people it's a combination of excessive intake of PUFA over time in combination with a, with some type of gut infection. And what you see with a lot of type two diabetics is high amounts of circulating endotoxin. Um, and so I think that, uh, I think that those, those are the two main areas. It's a high amount of polyunsaturated fatty acid intake, particularly from vegetable oils over time in conjunction with an infection in the gut or a high amount of endotoxin produ production coming from the gut. And oftentimes you'll see with a lot of diabetics, uh, they have little pot bellies or in some cases they have huge bellies. Um, so I think it's important to really address number one, the gut infection, 
and that's by diet and then um, different supplements and things like that. And then the second thing is to number one, really limit the polyunsaturated fat intake um, and replace it with, with saturated fats, uh, safe saturated fat sources and, and try and make sure that you have a, a decent omega-3 to omega-6 ratio while keeping both low over the long term. Um, I think that those are really important things to focus on in general if, to try and to try and fix those things. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, I don't know how much I'd focus on the omega three, omega six ratio. I would say also if you're eating quote unquote healthy foods or foods that we would consider to be healthy and supporting us metabolically, they're going to have some of those enough of the omega threes, you know, if you're getting healthy animal fats from like beef, you know, butter, dairy, whatever it is, there's going to be some omega threes in there. So they'll cover that anyways. Um, and then like healthy seafood, whether it's shrimp or, you know, shellfish or, bivalves mussels oysters whatever it is pufa there is a huge component i would add also just that in general the things that drive carb utilization also involve the hormones so the hormones are basically a reflection of our energetic state but then they also help to signal these things throughout the body and lead to they kind of mediate our adaptation where if we add where if we adapt to a helpful environment and an optimal environment or more optimal in the long term it'll lead to uh, one way it shows up is through these hormones that further on the signal and then vice versa. So because of that, the stress hormones are good at blocking energy production in the long term uh, and a lack of thyroid, which is really the main way that happens is through a lack of thyroid hormones and a lack of reproductive hormones that will lead to a lack of carbohydrate utilization. So those are things that if you address everything else should improve over time. But if needed, you could also you know, supplement with certain thyroid hormones or or um, protective steroid hormones, reproductive hormones, if if needed, those can help as well. And as I mentioned earlier, B vitamins can be really helpful, especially in higher doses. If if that is like if somebody is struggling with these things, um, that would be some of the main ones I would think of. There's yeah, B, B vitamins and proper diet, uh, particularly focusing less, I think, on starchy carbs and more on. Um, Sugars specifically from fruits and fruit juice, hundred percent fruit juice, whole fruits, dry fruits, things like that. I think will make the biggest difference. And I think there are some studies showing that giving type two diabetics fruits didn't have a negative impact on blood sugar over the long term. Um, yeah. So I think that is that's really important. And staying away from, um, and in some, and staying away particularly from a lot of the refined uh, sugars like granulated sugars, sodas, and different starchy carbs like breads, pastas, things like that. I think focusing on the others will help to keep the blood sugar uh, in a better range. And a lot of fruits have been shown to have a hypoglycemic effect in diabetics, things like that too. So I think that that's important and it helps with the gut issue as well. Um, as far as uh, tools and techniques and blood markers to show improvement and things like that, I mean, if you, it's kind of hard to see what exactly is going on on the cellular level. So a lot of the markers that people look at, particularly in relation to blood sugar um, and blood sugar regula regulation, is looking at blood glucose levels in general, looking at hemoglobin A1C, um, looking at insulin levels and things like that. And they can give an idea of how your body's using your blood sugar. But if you really want to see what's going on on the cellular level and a lot of type 2 diabetics, you're going to see over time probably your sugars come down. What your sugar is waking up in the morning is important. And then if you have a sugar right before a meal, then after you eat the meal, like directly after you take it, then an, another hour after and then two hours after. And you can see how your the curve and how your body's handling uh, the sugars. That's important. Um, and then the other thing is uh, you're, you're probably going to see like direct effects with your body. You'll probably start to see some weight coming off um, and then things like that it will as far as body temperature and pulse, as far as like using sugars directly, they can be helpful, but they're kind of hard. They're kind of hard to get a good gauge of that specifically. I mean, they are, they can help a lot with thyroid hormone, but you have to be pretty adept at understanding um, how to look at your body temperature and your pulse and making sure, because it, it, there's a lot of nuance with the body temperature and pulse, and it doesn't necessarily mean that blood, your sugar is being handled appropriately. Um, a lot of, I've worked with a lot of diabetics who can have high temperatures and, and have decent pulses and, and they're still diabetic. They're still type two diabetics with a lot of issues. So 
and a lot of those states, when you start running heavily on stress hormones, it can, you can get different readings and different effects. Uh, so it's kind of, those ones are kind of hard, but the easiest way to get an idea of how the body's handling it is to really look at your, the easiest way to do it at home is to just buy a glucometer and check your blood sugar right when you wake up, see where it's at there, and then check it right before your, right before a meal, directly after a meal, an hour after a meal, and then two hours after a meal once in a while just to see how you're just you're just you're handling the glucose or the sugar in general um and the other thing that's important to see and i've i've worked with with some people partake uh i've worked with some people and basically what i we took their sugars um before their meal directly after the meal an hour after the meal two hours after the meal but we checked it with with two different types of meals one meal was like the standard meal that you would get in a hospital which was your broccoli and I think it was salmon and uh, brown rice. You know, it's not a terrible meal, decently healthy meal. Um, there was no oh. fat. There was no sugar. Depends on there, who you ask as far as whether it's healthy. But I mean, it's not terrible. It's not the comparison meal that we looked at was oatmeal cookies from Publix. Okay. So <laughs> the glucose handling of the meal that was salmon, broccoli, and brown rice was fine. We didn't even get a spike in blood sugar from this meal. However, with the oatmeal cookie meal, which consisted of refined, uh, fortified wheat flour, soybean oil, and a bunch of other stuff that they put in the cookies, um, he had a spike and then the sugar didn't come down. So, uh, and then we've also tested with fruit juice and he didn't really get such, he got a little bit of spike with fruit juice, but nothing, nothing like ridiculously out of range. So, so normal fasting blood sugar, which would be when you wake up in the morning, they say over 100 is, is where that's getting into pre-diabetes or diabetes levels. And as far as postprandial, um, they say 140 or lower is, is where you want it to, again, not be in the pre-diabetic or, or diabetic levels. All of this, of course, depends on what you're eating and, and um, many other factors. But yeah, so as far as testing it yourself, it, fasting blood sugar is definitely helpful. And then as you're kind of alluding to, it all depends on the meal. So maybe having a particular meal that you use to test, maybe one of them is a fruit juice, maybe one of them is like soda or just like some straight uh, sugar, and then one is more of a balanced meal. And so that you can get an idea of how high your, your blood glucose is spiking um, using a, a glucometer would be, that would probably be the best way to determine carbohydrate utilization on the cellular level. And the reason for that is because the amount of carbohydrate that is taken in by the cells is dependent on how much the cells are using. Uh, and that's basically what insulin resistance is. And I'll reference articles and some articles and videos and podcasts on this. Uh, but basically the issue in insulin resistance is that the cells are not using carbs properly. And so the carbs don't make it into the cells. So they end up raising the blood sugar pretty extensively. And so yeah, so blood sugar is is probably the best way to get a, an indirect measurement of cellular carbohydrate utilization. And then, yeah, as you said, body temperature and pulse are good indicators of metabolism if they're used properly. If you're considering that uh, that they can be raised during due to stress hormones as well, so you just have to be able to sort out what uh, what it's being raised due to. Because basically, the best way to do that is well, and it gets even more complicated with somebody has insulin resistance. But typically, if somebody eats a meal that includes carbohydrates and enough fat to lower stress hormones, then whatever reading after that should be a, a pretty, uh, like a pretty objective reading. Because uh, before a meal, it could be elevated due to stress hormones. But for someone who's not using carbohydrates well, that brings in another factor where you might not have a drop in stress hormones after they eat carbohydrates. So it, it all depends. But yeah, those those would be okay. Uh, the glucometer measuring it in the way that we uh, mapped out would probably be the best way. But as Mike had mentioned also, just using general symptoms that somebody's experiencing is a good way as well. Like no, like having stable blood sugar throughout the day and like stable energy throughout the day and um, like feeling good after eating those sort of like carbohydrate containing meals. Those are all going to be good indicators of how well you're using carbohydrates and then weight as well. If, if, the weight gain has been an issue, then potentially weight loss is, is a factor there as well. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, then feel free to send me an email at j at jfeldmanwellness.com. 
That's J-A-Y at J-A-Y-FeldmanWellness.com. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can just leave those questions in the comments and I will add them to the list. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a review, a like, a comment, or a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does a lot to help support the podcast. And to check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast where you can take a look at any of the articles or studies or anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any of these symptoms or conditions that we talked about throughout today's episode, whether that is insulin resistance or diabetes or some sort of gut issue, a gut dysbiosis or a gut infection or any symptoms surrounding gut health, or maybe uh, more on the mental health side, whether that is depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or any other sorts of psychological symptoms or conditions, or maybe you're dealing with other low energy symptoms like constant cravings and hunger, a lack of energy throughout the day, maybe you're not sleeping well or you're dealing with chronic joint pain or all sorts of other symptoms or conditions, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy and sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll walk you through the main things that you want to be focusing on as far as nutrition, exercise, and other aspects of lifestyle are concerned so you can optimize your cellular energy balance and find relief from all of these symptoms and chronic health conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy And if you are looking for maybe a little bit more one-on-one help, maybe you would like to use some of those antimicrobials or implement some of the suggestions we had as far as the mental health side is concerned, but maybe you're not sure where to start or you've tried some things and you haven't had as much success as you were hoping for, or if you'd just like some extra guidance, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash call and sign up for a free call. And I'd be happy to help you out and offer some help, some suggestions based on your individual circumstances so that you can recover from any of these conditions or symptoms. So to sign up for that free call, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash call. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.